Well, good morning, Crickside. How are we? Are we good? That is great. I am uh, going to pray for you, uh, particularly in this transition. Um, and I want to throw out a challenge to you. Um, our church, thank you, Freddie. Uh, our church is regularly praying for you. So we pray for you often in our services. We pray for you in our elders meeting. We pray for you in our team meetings. And I want to challenge you that we should not pray for you more than you pray for you. Don't let another church beat you in praying for your church. So I'm going to lead us in prayer to pray for you as you transition. Pastors come in. It's a really exciting time for you. But I encourage you to pray. Pray for your church. Lift up your church and where God is leading you and guiding you. Because no matter what we do, if there's one thing we must do, we must pray. We must ask God to do what only God can do. Amen? So let us pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this wonderful, great church, these great people. Lord, that this is your church. Not just this church, but all the churches all over the world are your church. And you promise to build your church. God, you tell us that we are your children, we are your missionaries, we are your servants. But you tell us that you are the builder. That you are the one that builds the church. That you are our saviour. You are the one that saves us. You are our father. And so God, as this church continues to grow, to be led by you, Lord, we pray that you would be present. God, that your power would be present. That you would lead this church in the direction that you would have them to go. That you would unify this wonderful church together around you and your mission in this world. And God, may we hear of story after story after story of people coming into the life of this church and finding you and meeting you and being transformed by you and then going out into the world to tell others about you. And may your name be famous. May you be great. And we pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. I encourage you to keep praying that. Keep going. Don't ever stop praying. Um, a friend of mine once said, you know uh, what you depend upon God for by what you pray for. <laughs> and then I looked at what I prayed for, and it was little. And I encouraged me to go wider. Uh, if you are new, my name is Kylam. Uh, I'm the lead pastor of a different church uh, from Life Center Church, which is in North Lakes. And we are just friends uh, with you guys, and we are cheering you on. As I said, we're praying for you. Um, and so we've just been in a short series. This is week two. We started last week, and we're, we're calling this series Refresh, and we're looking at this idea of how do we live lives that we enjoy. And so I guess that the goal behind it is to say that we believe that God is a God of joy. Some people, uh, when you start talking about joy, you talk about these things, they get a little bit nervous because they think that you're going to basically say that everything's going to go well for you in life if you become a Christian, um, that you're going to get the man of your dreams, you're going to get the family of your dreams, you're going to get the job of your dreams. Uh, that's not what we're saying. What we are saying is you may get some good things, but also some things may not go so well, but what you do have is you have God, and God is with you. And in many ways, what the Bible would say is if you have none of these things, but you have God, you actually have everything. And so this week, uh, we're going to ask a different question. Last week, we asked the question of where am I? And we looked at this story of Adam and Eve in the garden and their separation. We had these degrees of separation from God. And God's response to them was to come towards them, to encounter them, to chase them, to pursue them, and then to bring him back bring them back to himself, and in that is where we find our joy. And today we're going to ask a different question. Today is not the question of where am I, it is the question of who am I. 
And it's the idea that as sin sort of came into the story, it didn't just separate humanity from God. It didn't just separate humanity from one another. It didn't even just separate humanity from the creation itself. But even internally, within the individual person, there is a, there is a dis, disconnect between how we feel about ourselves and who God says we actually are. And I've learned, uh, I'm now 40, I know, thank you for the applause. I look a lot younger than that. Most people go, so what are you, 25, and you're leading a church? That's right, I'm 25. I've got 12,000 children. Um, I look young, I know, but that's going to work really well for me when I'm 80. My wife's going to be like, man, you still look good. At the moment, she thinks I look ugly. But when I'm 80, she's going to be really impressed. It's going to be great. It's going to go well for me. Um, There is a sense in which we lose who we are. And the Bible would say... That identity is actually really important to how you experience and express yourself in the world. And this is not just a teenage thing. This is not just a young thing. I've got a young boy who's 10. He's starting to smell. I'm starting to freak out a little bit. I'm like, get that roll on, dude. Start doing this stuff uh, because things are starting to change. And I know in his growing up, he's going to start to have questions about himself and who is he. But I've learned that it's not just a teenage thing. This is a human thing. We all have to wrestle with who we are. I remember one day I was going through a tough time in my life, really, really struggling, and I remember texting my wife uh, some just negative things about myself. And I, I literally text these words of like, how does it feel to be married to a loser like me? I was in a very, very low place. I was very, very unhappy, not with life, because in the point of that that time in my life, I had a beautiful wife who loved me and cared for me and was faithful to me. I had beautiful children. I had a beautiful church. But there was something on the inside of me that was dissatisfied and did not like me. And then that was affecting how I engaged my wife, how I engaged my children, how I engaged our church, and how I engaged the world. This idea of identity is important because, as we looked at last week, we are created beings. Because we are created beings, that means we are needing beings. We have needs. God is the only one who is without need. You and I, as humans, we have particular needs. You will know this, that you have this sense of a need for a a purpose, a meaning in life. And without that, there's, there's a discontentment within your soul that if you don't know why you're here, you can wrestle with that. And we even ask these questions of, what am I doing? Why am I married? Why am I working? Why am I you know, parenting? Why am I doing these things? We have need for love, for affection, for a sense of belonging. We all need this. If you look at our culture, our culture is dividing massively at the moment. In the West, because people are finding like their identity in this place in which they belong. Well, I'm a Ford man and I'm a Holden man. I'm a a Broncos supporter, I'm a Cowboys supporter, I'm a liberal, I'm a leftist. We have this need of purpose, meaning, love, affection, belonging, but we also have this sense that we need to know who we are. And because we are humans with this need, our souls naturally go looking for things. They go to somewhere or something or someone in order to find this. If you remember the story of Moses in the Bible, 
It's in the book of Exodus. He has this really unique story where at the time that he is born, the emperor of Egypt is basically killing all the males. And so his mom freaked out about that, comes up with this idea. She's going to stick him in a basket and just pray and hope to God that God does something with this young boy. And so she sticks him in this basket. It goes down the river. And it just so happens that one of the Egyptians' daughters is sitting there and, and the mom finds this, uh, this little boy in this little basket. They adopt him into the Egyptian family. Now, he's an Israelite, born in Israel. He was supposed to be raised as an Israelite, but then he's over on the opposite side in the opposite team, and he becomes an Egyptian, and they train him, and they teach him. And he kind of, at this point, as he grows up, he finds out that actually he's not who he thought he was. And as an Egyptian, he was taught to hate the Israelites, and if he was an Israelite, he would have been taught to hate the Egyptians because the Egyptians were making the Israelites slaves. He grows up has this conflict of identity. He actually kills a man and then he flees and he runs into the desert. And it was the best thing that could happen to him. Because it is in the desert where he runs into his creator, his God, and his God talks with him, communes with him, and then actually commissions him. God actually says to Moses that I want you to go back to the Egyptians and deliver the Israelites, the people. And he's kind of in this turmoil of like, am I an Egyptian? Am I an Israelite? And so he's really confused. Listen to the words of Moses back to God. Verse 11. So God comes to him, commissions him, and says, But Moses said to God, Who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Now, can you imagine if God said to you, I want you to go to this other nation. I'm going to make you the deliverer of maybe one million to three million people. Now, not everyone in this room would do this because some of you are a lot more mature than I, but I would have been hashtagging that up. Hashtag, I'm the deliverer. Hashtag, going to Egypt. Hashtag, boom. You know, hashtag, whatever. Coming at you, Egypt. Come at me. I would have been hashtagging that thing up. I would have been Instagramming that thing. And I would have been loving the fact that God called me to do that. He is not. He's like, I can't do that. Because I don't know who I am. Growing up. As a young boy, my parents are quite influential people in uh, the church world that we were growing up in, and they were parents, and uh, I used to really appreciate how people used to call me Vic and Carrie Lewis's son. Oh, you must be Vic's son. Oh, you must be Carrie's son. I have a name. You know what I mean? Like, my name is Kylam. I know it's unusual. I know they probably made it up while they were smoking weed and doing wrong things and was like, how can we confuse this guy and give him an identity crisis? Let's make up a name that has no meaning and let's give it to him. But still, it's a name. (laughs) Right? So I grew up where people just wouldn't even use my name. Then I become a pastor. I become a somebody And the exact same time, my little squirt of a little brother who's six years younger than me, one of his songs that he writes gets played all through America. He becomes like BFFs with Darlene Check from Hillsong. And I go from being known as Vic and Kerry's son to like, oh, you must be Chardon's brother. (laughs) 
I have a name. <laughs> I got a name. I got a name. I know it's hard to remember, but I got a name. Last year, I invited my oldest brother to come with me. Me and my family would go away to Agnes Water every year to, to camp, and I decided to invite him and his family to come up with me. And as we were up there, we kind of, we, we park in, we get everything sent up. And it's weird. All these men are like checking out my brother. Now, you don't know my brother, and that's a good thing. Don't worry about his name. <laughs> but he, he, over the last couple of years, has become quite famous because he's a four-wheel drive guy. He's in all the four-wheel drive action movies, uh, DVDs, and he's got this whole thing going on. So I'm at Agnes Waters with my family. Like, this is our thing. We invite you in, and here he is on day one signing autographs for people who are tenting right next to me. And someone says this to me. Must be awesome to be Barney's brother. <laughs> I'm like, I have a name. And so he's never allowed to come again. So that's totally fine. There is a sense that we want to know who we are. And some Christians would say, well, this is kind of psychologism. And this doesn't really have a place in, in, in the Christian world. And I would say, no, if you read the Bible, this seems to be very, very central to Scripture, to the Word. The issue is not whether we have an identity, the issue is, where is it placed? What is it anchored in? And I'm going to give you four substitutes of what our culture is saying that we should place our identity in. These are going to come up on the screen. And I want you to just evaluate where you are and see whether some of these are some things that often we place our sense of identity, our place of joy, our place of security, our place of satisfaction in number one is that we often place our identity in achievement. And again, if you go back to last week, we learned that God makes us to be workers. He created us to be successful workers, to be stewards of what He has given us, and to work and to be fruitful. So work is a good thing. But what, happen, what often happens is we take work as a good thing, and we make it a God thing, and now it becomes a hurtful thing. And so we look to the things that we do to determine how we feel. We look at things that we achieve or don't achieve. And so you, you may have experienced this. When you have a job that's going well, you feel good about life. But what happens when you lose a job? What happens when you don't have a job that's going so well? It can affect how you feel on the inside. And the, the moment that we take on our achievements as something that gives us our identity, we become slaves to this never-ending cycle of going after more and more achievement to fill that up. Or, if it doesn't go so well, we get really discouraged. But the Bible would say, you are not what you have done. You are not what you are doing. Two. We can have our identity in relationships. Just as God created us to be successful workers, God also created us to be social and relational beings. But sometimes we can go to those relationships to make us feel good. Another example, uh, my son. Last year he was uh, nine years old and he got asked to play up two year levels in AFL footy. So supposed to be playing under nines, playing under 11s. I was the greatest father that has ever existed. I was so proud of my scrawny, weak, 
weedy son. I was like, yes, he is going to go out there. And people were like, who's the youngest? And I'm like, it's my kid's the youngest. And then we got to week one where my scrawny, weak little nine-year-old was playing against under-11s who were like bricks and huge, and, um, and he wasn't doing so well. He was, he was avoiding tackles, and people, the coaches are yelling, get in there, and he's like, ah. and so I was like, no, that's, that's not my son, eh? I don't know who that kid is. Um, he's, he's way young, don't worry about him. Um, sometimes the way our kids go at school puffs us up or it affects us. How they're achieving, how they're going at sport, as parents, we are given this great gift of children, but sometimes we allow them to give us our identity and to change the way we even feel about ourselves. But our kids are not meant to be trophies on the mantle of our identity. They're supposed to be gifts from God that we steward well and we empower to eventually go out into the world knowing who they are in God. Marriage it's the same. We can feel most alive when our spouses are happy, singing our praises. But as soon as we feel ignored, taken for granted, the joy turns to discouragement, even irritation. Life is so much better. Men, can you just finish this for me? Happy wife. I love how all the men are like, oh, I don't know if I can say that. Don't hit me. Don't hurt me. Men, can I give you another one? Happy spouse, happy house. We have one, men. It doesn't just go to the women, right? It's also happy house, happy. So ladies, you need to make us happy. And if we're happy, your life goes well. Okay, we've got one. We can use that too. But isn't it true sometimes, even in a good thing, which is marriage, sometimes we can look to the spouse to be the one that gives us our joy, gives us our satisfaction, fixes all the things that we see wrong with ourselves. And the Bible would say marriage is a good thing. Spouses are a good thing. Children are a good thing. But they are not a God thing. And they need to be kept as a good thing. And they, when your kids are going well, when your marriage is going well, or when your kids aren't going well, or your marriage is not going well, that doesn't change who you are. I remember the first time I worked out, my parents were not perfect. Do you remember that moment? <laughs> Whenever we do marriage counseling, I... Uh, I have a hard time convincing both the, the, the male and the female that their parents aren't perfect. And they both want to come into a marriage going, well, this is how we did it. This is how my parents did it. And they're right. And the other one's like, well, that's not how we did it. We did it this way. And I just sit there and I sit back and I just watch them go. I kind of like, I just open up the can and just let it happen. And then by the end, you're like, this is going to go real well. What if you don't build your marriage identity upon the past of your parents, but actually just went back to what does God say? Because that'll go better for you in your marriage. Number three, we put our identity in possessions. God has created us as physical beings. We live in a physical world. Therefore, physical things are meaningful to us. They are good for us. We can see, we can touch, we can smell. We can have experiences. I know with a lot of the, the millennial generation and the young adults we have in our church, they love experiences. And if they can be at that, they will f put that on Instagram and Facebook and show the world we were there. It was awesome. And was like, you're awesome. Why are you awesome? Because you were at the awesome experience. But what about all those who weren't at that awesome experience? What are they? 
We have physical possessions. We are given houses, cars, clothes. These things can impact how we feel about ourselves. I don't know how many people hear Netflix, but on Netflix there is this uh, show called Tidying Up with Maria Kondo. I don't know if you've seen this. She's this little, gorgeous, cute Japanese lady who you just want to squeeze and hug because she's so beautiful. And she's essentially coming into the Western culture and she's doing something which is really, really interesting. She's trying to help families declutter. And she actually says, I love mess. I love mess. And she goes in and she helps people to declutter. But what is interesting is how she does that. So she actually gets the, the people, the home, the family, whoever it is, to come. And she says to them, does this bring you joy? And it's called like the sparking of joy. And so they look at something and it's like, you know, okay, this is the Bible, so I'm going to say yes, okay? Um, yes, okay, but this is an iPad, so I'm going to say no, just in case I get in trouble from God. Um, <clears throat> iPad, no. Well, if it doesn't spark joy, get rid of it. And so she's helping all of these people declutter. But the problem is, she's still telling them to get joy from the possessions. So they will declutter, and they will feel good for a while, but after a while, that TV will need to be replaced. That kitchen table will need to be replaced. I guarantee you, if you just follow their stories, after a while, more and more stuff will come back into those homes because they've been taught, even by her, which appears to be a good thing, but actually it's just reinforcing the old thing, which is go-to stuff to make you feel good. So the iPhone needs to get upgraded, the car needs to get upgraded, the house needs to get upgraded, and all of those things are telling us how we should feel. Our physical appearance. As we age, let's just leave it there. <laughs> God is the creator of these physical things. These things are good, but God also says to us that man shall not live upon bread alone. Physical things are good. They're not necessarily bad. They're good things, but they are not God things, and they cannot give us our identity. Four. Identity and performance. As humans, we need approval. If you have children, you will know this. If you work in a school, you will know this. That there needs to be this constant environment of encouragement and approval. It is so crucial to the human soul. We need it. But sometimes we grow up and we still depend upon it from those particular people. And in the performance of work, in the performance of the home... I know even in the church, there are people who they've staked their identity on their theological positions and they know that they are right and they want to be right. And if you try and mess with their theology, it affects how they feel. And they place themselves in a certain camp and say, well, we're in this camp and we're not in that camp. And God would say, we're all one camp. I thought the camp was God. What is the problem of anchoring our identity in these things? All of these things are movable. All of these things are changeable. All of these things are adaptable. And all of these things are temporal. You can lose all of them. And what the Bible wants to say is, don't anchor your identity in something that is changeable. Anchor it in something that is unchangeable. Because then no matter what your circumstance, no matter what you go through, your problems, your pain, all of that stuff that sometimes affects how we feel about ourselves, you will know who you are. So Galatians 4 speaks about what we sung about this morning. It's this picture of this person who is a son or a daughter of God. 
yet they have this view of themselves as a slave and they live out as slaves. So it literally says, though you are a child of God, you live like a slave. And so I believe the Bible wants to tell us how we get our identity and who we are. And I think the clearest way to say this, the Bible would say, it's not about who you are, it's about whose you are. It's not just about who you are, it's about whose you are. I remember being a youth pastor of a, a small youth group, we had about 30, 30, odd, 30 odd kids, about 20 boys. And of those 20 boys, 75% of them didn't have dads. Most of them didn't know their dads. But it led to this internal struggle of like, I can't know myself unless I know where I came from. And we'd always have these talks and these discussions about should they go and find their dad? Technology was coming in, so now you could kind of Google, you could do some blood stuff, and you could chase the tree and chase this sense. And I think it's how we're made. But not just from a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. Because there are illegitimate parents, but there are no illegitimate children, because God made those children. So what should define us? I'm going to give you a few things that I believe will help us to ground our identity. Number one, what makes us valuable? What gives us our identity? Number one is that you and I are made in the image of God. That can never change. When you read through the Bible, it astounds me that God decided to place his image upon humanity. Do you ever think about that? There is a sense in which others can look at us, look at you, and get a glimpse of something about God. That's crazy. But it's also special. And whether life is going well or whether life is going bad... I can never lose that. God designed me. God thought me up. And God put his image upon me. Is there any other higher thing that God could do? Is there any way of bestowing more honor and dignity and value and worth upon every single human being? I love this about the Christian faith. The Christian faith, because of this belief, says everybody is valuable. Man, woman, valuable. Adult, child, valuable. Rich, poor, valuable. Dignity, worth, why? Nothing to do with what the person has done, but because of what God has done. And he made you. And he made me. So we can look at every single human being, anybody that ever walks through the door of this church, and we can instantly say, you are valuable, you have dignity, you have worth, because you are made in the image of God. You may not believe like us, you may not sing like us, you may not dress like us, but you are like us. Amen? Second, God sent his son to die and to rise in your place. This is the idea that God placed his image upon us, and then we have done things which have fractured that, yet still God continues to love us. That astounds me even more. I don't know about you. You all look pretty perfect. Um, I mess up all the time. I have four children. They really help me mess up. But even when I mess up, even when I don't treat my children like God would treat them, 
I'm reminded that his son came, went to a cross and died so I could be forgiven of how I don't measure up and image him, and then rose again to new life so that he could help me to start to re-image him. That tells me who I am. God loves you so much that even when you fracture that image, He is willing to forgive you. He is willing to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Jesus not only died for you, but He was willing to die. He wanted to die. Why? Because He wanted to have you and to rescue you. So your past may explain some things about you, but it does not have to define you. God gave you His Spirit. In the Bible, Christians have this belief that when we become Christians, God actually gives us himself. And he places his spirit in us to transform us, to change us. So as if forgiving us wasn't enough, God desires to conform us back into the image of his son. And he does so by providing us with his spirit to dwell in us, to change us. Again, you are not defined by your past failure, moral marital or career you are defined by God who gives you his spirit to transform you your education may explain some things about you but it doesn't have to define you as a, as a young boy my mum in a now that I've got four children I understand in a day of just frustration and anger I don't even know what I did doesn't matter she said to me if you had a brain you'd be dangerous Some of you are still wondering whether I got that brain. <laughs> Doesn't matter. I'm made in the image of God. And he died for this brain. That stayed with me for a long, long time. I didn't really do well in school. I repeated grade 12. <clears throat> Let's move on. But then something to prove my dumbness. I married the most intelligent woman in the world. And in my home, my children, they, they, they do this regularly. Hey, Dad, I don't worry, we'll ask Mum. <laughs> You're like, I know some stuff too, you know. I've got a brain. And they go, yeah, you know the Bible, we'll come to you. I've got like one category. If it's clouds, the different types of clouds, nut. If it's rocks, nut. If it's everything else. And even then, they call me out and stuff I get wrong with the Bible. <laughs> I'm not a highly educated man. I'm a God man. I don't know a lot of stuff. I know God. I know everything. Because I know the one who knows everything. My education does not have to define me. Your wealth, how much you earn, doesn't have to define you. It may explain some things about you, but it does not have to define you. You know God who owns everything, created everything. So it doesn't matter what you earn or don't earn. It doesn't matter where you live or don't live. It doesn't matter what you drive or don't drive. Your father owns it all. So the very thing you're looking to to say, if I could just have that, God already owns it. It's already his. Even your faithlessness to God may explain you, but doesn't have to define you. Do you get up and think, man, I am a mess. I don't know what I'm doing. I keep messing up. I don't know if I'm a Christian. The Bible keeps telling us God is the one who saves. God is the one that holds you. Again, if we go back to Moses, he's like, who am I, God? And I love God's response. God says to him, 
Okay, you don't know who you are, but listen what he says. But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. That when you have been brought the people out of Egypt, you should serve God on this mountain. Moses is like, I don't know who I am. I can't do this thing. I can't do what you've called me to do. And God doesn't go to Moses and just tell him, no, Moses, you're awesome. You're awesome. You're awesome. He just says, I'm with you. And if God is with you, who can be against you? If God is for you, who can be against you? If God is on your team and you are in God and you're a part of God's family, that automatically places you in the majority. And if you're here and you're a Christian, we're having some tough times at the moment. Not everybody likes us. I don't know if you knew that. We're going to be tempted to think that we are the minority, that we're on our own. And God wants us to lift our eyes to heaven to go, we are in the majority because we are with God. And he is with us. He gives us his Bible. This is the idea that God wants to commune with you. He wants to give you words and stories and narratives that you can read and learn about him. God doesn't just want to create you and let you go off. God wants to be intimately knowing you and you knowing him. He wants to be close to you. So he gives you this book, which sometimes is hard to understand. Sometimes there's there's complicated things in it. But even in that, if you read it, you get to know God, what he's really like. Not what culture says he's like, what he's really like. He gives you his family. This is one of my favorite things about church. Every Sunday... I get to go to my church, and I just get to be with people that are my family. They love me imperfectly. I love them imperfectly, but they are my brothers. They are my sisters, and together, we're a family of God. I love to come to another church like Creekside because I'm reminded we are brothers and sisters. We are a family of God. And the Bible would say one day when it's all said and done, we're going to be with God all together, one big family, worshiping God. So your upbringing may explain some things about you, but it doesn't have to define you. Your father in heaven isn't abusive. Your father in heaven isn't neglectful or absent. Your father in heaven does not abdicate. Your father in heaven does not leave you. He does not forsake you. Your Father in heaven loves you and is present with you. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is Galatians 2.20. It says, I, It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, saying this physical walking out of my Christian faith, this is how I live it. I now live it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is how we live, with our identity anchored in God. As the band come up, I just want to finish by reading through a short passage in Ephesians. Freddie read uh, verse 7 this morning. This is going to come up on the screen, but I want you to look at how the Bible says we are to see ourselves. This is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. says this, says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In other words, we are blessed. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We are God's chosen people. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself. We are God's adopted children. As sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Again, look at this. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him. We have redemption. We are redeemed. I no longer have to fear God. I don't have to have to worry about what he might say. Because I'm already in him. I'm redeemed through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. We are forgiven according to the riches of his grace. I love this, which he lavished upon us. God is not stingy, he is generous. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. He goes on, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope, that's the first thing it said we have done in this passage. Everything else is God. What do we do? We hope. We trust. In Christ to be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and here we go, believed in him. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. I believe that your joy in life is not tied to your possessions. It's not tied to your positions. It's not tied to the power that you may have or not have. It's not even tied to the pleasures in which we experience. It's tied, it's anchored. In God. And if you can keep your identity anchored in whose you are, you will know who you are, whether or not you have these things or don't have these things, whether or not life is going well or not going well. And in there, your joy can never be stolen because you can have pain and have God. You can have persecution and have God. You can have suffering and have God. You can have problems and have God. But you can have those things and not have God. And that will rob your soul of joy. And if you don't know this God, I would love you to keep coming back to this church and learning and hearing about this God. So that you can come back to Him, know Him, walk with Him, and be anchored in Him. Amen? Let us pray. God, you are good. You are so good to us. God, as we just read in that, that passage quickly, we see all the things you have done for us. We see that you are our Father that adopts us. You're, you're the Son who comes and redeems us. You're the Holy Spirit who seals us and guarantees us. Lord, as we leave today, would you remind us of who you are so we can be reminded of whose we are and in light of that, know who we are and live from a place of fullness of joy. We thank you for this in your name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen.